Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 28th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Michael Nathanson. Michael is the CEO of the Colony Group, a private wealth management firm based in the Boston area that has nearly $6 billion of assets under management and has managed to systematize its wealth management and investment solutions to the point of driving a whopping 39% profit margin and nearly quadruple the size of the firm in just the past five years alone through a combination of both a series of major acquisitions and organic growth across multiple niches, including corporate executives, athletes, and entertainers, and an ultra-high net worth family office division. What's unique about Michael, though, is how he truly functions as a CEO to the Colony Group, Whereas he puts it, his primary job is to be the chief inspiration officer that sets the vision for the firm, visits with nearly 100 employees across seven different locations trying to get them excited about achieving that vision, and crafting a focused strategy to attract, develop, engage, and retain the top talent in the industry. In this episode, Michael gives us a behind-the-scenes look at how a large independent RIA operates, where investment management duties are entirely separated from the wealth managers who may help clients select strategies and formalize an investment policy statement, but then let the investment management team actually run and manage the portfolio, where the firm has formalized its career track into a progression from associate to senior associate to financial counselor and senior financial counselor, and how the partners have formalized criteria to buy units of their LLC entity with financing arranged by the firm. We also talk about how the Colony Group built its core technology stack with a combination of Tamarack, Juncture, and eMoney Advisor, its compensation policy for all the advisors in the firm, and how the Colony Group differentiates itself with what it calls its four E's, expertise, the entirety of its comprehensive services, its enhanced open architecture, and its ability to execute as an enterprise. And be certain to listen to the end, where Michael talks about what he sees as the true threat for advisory firms in the future where it's not about fee compression and robo-advisors and DOL fiduciary compliance or the generational shift to millennials, but instead is all about the ability of the firm and its leadership to keep its people inspired to achieve the vision of the firm. Because if the team doesn't believe, then the firm won't be able to execute. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Michael Nathanson. Welcome, Michael Nathanson, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Oh, it's good to be here, Michael. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today because a lot of the advisors we've talked to so far on this podcast are we're either solo firms or, or maybe multi-advisor partnerships with one or two advisors, but you're the CEO of Colony Group, which is a, a very large multi-billion dollar RA. I think you guys are, are well over $5 billion of AUM now multiple offices, multiple states. I had an investment from Focus Financial that boosted acquisitions. And I I think I I read you guys have quadrupled or so in the past five years, which puts Colony at at one of the the maybe few dozen largest independent RAs in the the country. And and I know that the reality is that life is different in a larger RAA like yours than what I, I think what most advisors 
experience on their own. I mean, I've, I've gone through a version of this myself. When I started at Pinnacle Advisory Group 15 years ago, I, I think I was like employee number eight or nine. We were a little over $150 million under management. Uh, you know, our holiday parties, like everybody and their spouse sat down at one table and we all had dinner together. And now we're closing in on $1.8 billion and 50 plus staff and the firm has changed a lot. And, and now we're having trouble finding restaurants in town to do the holiday party and we need name tags. And, and I, sorry, just, I thought it would be a great opportunity for you to give our advisor listeners some perspective on what it's like in a, in a larger firm and, and how the leadership of a larger RIA views the, the landscape as it exists right now in the advisory industry. So I, I really appreciate your willingness just to, to join us and share some perspective. Well, again, it's a real pleasure to be on with you. So let me just say that it is a, a different experience. And I can speak to that because when I joined the Colony Group, we had under $600 million under management. And that was back in 2004. So I've experienced life back then as well as what it's like now to be you know, some 10 times the size that we were uh, back in 2004. It's a heck of a trajectory to to run 10x in 13 years or so. So maybe as a starting point, can you just tell us a little bit about Colony as it exists today? Like paint us a little bit of a picture of what do you do and 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 how do you size the firm and how do you look at Colony as an advisory business? So in order to understand what Colony is today, it is important to understand what it has been. And here's the way I think about it. You know, I think about the, the evolution of a, an RIA as follows. I think that most RIAs begin as practices, you know, typically surrounding a, an individual, sometimes more than one individual. Many practices evolve into collections of practices sharing resources. And in turn, many collections of practices sharing resources evolve into businesses. I would say that in the 80s, we were largely a practice. I would say that in the 90s, we were a collection of practices sharing resources trying to develop into a business. I think we became a business sometime in the 2000s. And so then the question is, well, what about what's happened since then? And what I would tell you is that you're right that we joined Focus Financial in 2011. We joined with the intent of, of trying to do something that very, very few advisory firms do, which is to convert a business to evolve a business into an enterprise. And I believe that that's where we are now. So I think that, that you, you can describe the colony group now as an enterprise. And what I mean by that is we now are an organization that I hope is perpetual in nature, one that is not reliant on any one or 10 or 20 people. And one where there is extreme specialization, not just in terms of what we do from a service perspective, but in terms of the way that we operate. So we don't have anyone wearing multiple hats. And so that's who we are today, where we're an enterprise in terms of what I do at that enterprise. I am the, the CEO and chairman. I'm very careful not to say that I run the colony group because that is not the way that an enterprise operates. My responsibility, my accountability to my partners, and I have 37 partners, and also to my clients is to make sure that the company is operating effectively. But 
I like to, to, to tell people that my ultimate responsibility is to be the chief inspiration officer. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's a great book called How Google Works. I'm not sure if you've read it before. Ever read that? I haven't, although I, I've heard of it. So we'll make sure we put a link out to it in the show notes for this for people that are curious because I've, I've, I've been wondering for a while. So How Google Works. Yeah, and it's a great book. And of course, it's not about how the search engine works, but how the company works. And what they talk about is that when you hire smart people, and at the Colony Group, we like to say that we, we, we seek to attract, develop, engage, and retain the best people in the business. When you hire smart people in the, in the How Google Works book, they call them smart creatives, you can't tell a smart creative what to do. And that, that, that's really not going to be helpful going forward. What you as a leader can do and should do is provide them the environment that they need to do their best work and inspire them, fuel their work with inspiration. And that is how I would describe my role. Yeah, Mark Mark Tabergian has a kind of a similar way of framing it that I had I had heard from him years ago and and love and it was that you know the way he puts it our our job as the leader of a firm is not to motivate people it's to create an environment in which motivated people will flourish. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well said. Better said than the way I just said. That's exactly right. You know, another concept they talk about in how Google works is they talk about, you know, sort of the way people look at organizational structures. You know, there's this concept of span of control, this concept of you look at an org chart, you shouldn't have more than X people reporting to you, et cetera. And it, in, in that book, what they talk about is this concept of making sure that every manager has at least seven people reporting to them. And they do that because if you have that many people reporting to you, you can't micromanage them. And again, it's the same kind of theme. That's what really makes people grow. It's a great concept. I wish it were mine. You should have at least seven people reporting to you because it will force you to make sure you're not micromanaging. Precisely. It's an interesting concept. And, and that is the philosophy that we have here as well. Yeah. So what does the firm look like Overall, I you know I know by asset base you guys are over five billion dollars. I don't even know if that that's how you typically think of the business when you when you size it. It's like how how do you view or characterize the the size of Colony Group? Sure. So most importantly, we have just over one hundred employees. Equally importantly, we have about 2,000 clients. Now, the vast majority of our clients are high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals and families, private clients, but we also do have a very substantial institutional practice as well. About a billion dollars really is, is in the institutional space. We have seven offices. We have two offices in Massachusetts, two offices in New York, one in Virginia, one in Florida, one in Colorado. We are assets under management. Our regulatory assets under management are just under $6 billion, and our total billable assets are just over $6 billion. And the difference between those, like what is your fee structure such that you have billable assets that's higher than your regulatory AUM is like there's some things that you would I guess ostensibly there's some things you advise on but don't manage with discretion. 
Right, exactly. So from a regulatory perspective, we have, again, 5.8, 5.9 billion of assets on which we either, in most cases, have discretionary authority or it's non-discretionary, but we're ultimately pulling the trigger in terms of making the trade once it's approved by a client. And then we also have assets where we're advising on the assets, but we don't pull the ultimate trigger. We don't have the, the final say as to whether our advice actually is implemented. And so in those cases, we're not you know, pursuant to the SEC rules. We, we, we don't get to call those assets. And what would those situations be? Is, is that like, do you, do you, you know, people who are still working, you'll give them advice on a 401k plan then tell them how to manage it? Or or are there other situations where you've got non-discretionary billable assets? Yeah, that would be one example. Another example where we, where we would be serving as a sub-advisor to another manager and providing them with, with our recommendations, but then it's up to that manager to, uh, to implement the recommendations. So if I do kind of the rough math here, about 2,000 clients, a billion in institutional, so I guess close to $5 billion is is on the individual side, 2,000 clients and a $5 billion, like a typical client is is $2.5 million of investable assets with you guys, give or take a little? Is that a fair yeah, characterization? So, yeah, something to that effect, maybe a little bit higher than that. But yes, that that's probably about right. Okay. And so so that's the client base. Now, you said uh, 100 employees. I'm assuming that's that's lots of different roles because there's lots of things that go on in, in, a, in a firm at your size. So of the 100 employees, like how many of those are client-facing advisors? How many of those are operations? What, what else is in the firm? Like how do, you, how do you slice up 100 different employees across the, all the stuff that has to get done in the firm? Sure, sure. So first, with regard to clients, I, I want to be clear that you know we have a, a, a number of clients that have – 50 plus million with us. We also have clients that have well under a million with us just for, you know, for whatever legacy reasons or other reasons. So there, it is a pretty broad, broad group of clients. With regard to our employees, I'm going to say that we have probably have about, I'm going to say 60 plus are on the advisory side. Now, some of those are not, you know, some of those are what we call associates or senior associates that may not be managing relationships directly, but rather are supporting senior advisors. But importantly, as you think about our structure, we also have a very substantial group of investment professionals. I'll speak to how we manage money in a little bit. We have a pretty, a pretty a strong and large group of, of people who are, you know, in most cases, CFAs or CMTs who are working behind the scenes, not necessarily facing clients on a daily basis, but working on the, the money management function. And then, of course, we have a pretty large operational team. We have management people. We have marketing people, compliance people, legal people, HR people, etc. So the the investment side is interesting so you i'm i'm presuming then there's a complete separation or at least a partial separation from what the advisors do with clients and how the firm manages money the the advisors don't actually set the portfolios the firm sets the portfolios and the advisors i guess advise on everything else besides the portfolio the advisor knows the client the best and therefore it's their responsibility to to help set the goals 
and to ultimately settle upon an asset allocation strategy and indeed, you know, work on the investment policy statement. That being said, we want our advisors focused on the wealth management aspect of what they do, as well as on building that strong relationship. We also believe that there is a benefit to, again, extreme specialization. And so while we have no doubt that there are good people out there who, you know, have the CFP designation and are also managing money, we believe in a model where you have the financial planning professional out front and behind the scenes available to speak to the client, but, you know, typically not regularly interacting with the client. You have a team of analysts and portfolio managers and assistant portfolio managers who are managing money behind the scenes. So what happens is they get effectively the, you know, the, the asset allocation order, so to speak, from the relationship manager. Their job is to fill the order. Of course, you know, working with the advisor to make sure that we're, we're accomplishing everything the client needs and then to ultimately maintain the portfolio going forward. So. It's an, that's an interesting separation. So how many people live in this world of being invest managers and assistant invest managers or, or portfolio managers, assistant portfolio managers? Like how, how many people are on that side of the, the business? Yeah, I'm going to say maybe 15 or so. Okay. And so what does that structure look like? Like are they – the, are these people just working with clients? Just they wear the like the investment trader hat, or do they also have investment management and research duties for the the portfolios that you create? Does that make sense? You make a distinction between sort of investment research folks and trading and implementation folks, or are they all wearing one common hat? No, we actually do make that distinction. So, so here's what we have: we have uh, we have a chief investment officer. And, and so our chief investment officer ultimately is accountable for that, the, the entire, we call it colony investment management. It is a division of the colony group. So CIM for, you know, we call it SIM sometimes. And so uh, we have a chief investment officer who leads that function. Now under our chief invest, and of course we have an investment committee comprised of multiple people from different, different components of our company. But under our chief investment officer, we have a someone who leads our proprietary strategies. And so we do have some proprietary strategies, which I'll talk about in, in a few minutes. But we also have someone who leads our what we call public market strategies. And these, of course, are mutual funds and index funds and ETFs, et cetera. And then we also have someone who leads private market strategies. And these are typically closed vehicles, such as, as hedge funds or other private investment vehicles. In addition, under proprietary strategies, we have someone who is managing – we have people in charge of equity strategies and people in charge of fixed income strategies. So we have people who are responsible for different functions and effectively we have someone you know who's accountable for proprietary equity strategies, someone who's accountable for proprietary fixed income strategies, someone who's accountable for public market strategies, someone who's accountable for private market strategies. All of those people are supported by our research teams. We have a director of research and of course there are people under all of those people. Now 
We have on the trading side, we have assistant portfolio managers who support our lead portfolio managers on the proprietary strategies and who also implement our public market strategies. So the portfolio managers have are the leaders on these strategies, proprietary equity, proprietary fixed income, public market, private market. And then the assistant portfolio managers are reporting up to support those portfolio managers and then also, I guess, liaising across to the advisors and their clients to actually implement the strategies, do the trading, make sure that clients are allocated appropriately into whatever strategy that they're associated with. Well, that was perfectly described because that's exactly the way that they work. So they, you know, you can think of these assistant portfolio managers as effectively bridging the gap. That's right. And they work directly not only with the investment people, with the CIM people, colony investment management people, but also with the colony wealth management division people or C- CWM or SWIM. So that's right. They're exactly, uh, they are working on both sides to make sure that portfolio strategies are being implemented and monitored. So with that kind of structure, I guess from if I'm a wealth manager at Colony, basically I've got this, this suite of portfolio strategies that I can offer to my clients. So if you're if you're higher net worth, we've got some private market strategies and maybe if you're an average mere millionaire, like we've got some great public market strategies for you and then for specialized situations. We've got some of our proprietary strategies and and part of my job as a wealth manager, like I don't get to design these things, but I'm the one that figures out which of them is appropriate for their client given needs, circumstances, goals, taxes, and all the rest. So here's the thing. Every company has bias. And, you know, you hear people who are pure passive managers and they say, oh, well, you know, if you're not passive, you're biased. And then you hear the active people, you know, who say the same thing that, well, if you're passive, that's because all you can do is be passive. So you're, you know, there's a bias there. Some people are biased for proprietary. Some people are biased for non-proprietary strategies. The fact is we all have to acknowledge that there is some bias in the way we manage money. What we have endeavored to do you know, at some point during this conversation, I hope we have a chance to talk about mission, vision, values. You know, at the top of our value list is being open-minded, always open to learning, never being committed to being right, never being committed to, you know, to feeling like we have all the answers. And what we've done is over time, we have evolved our offering to incorporate what we hope our best judgment is sort of the best of all worlds. And so while we certainly don't endeavor to be everything to everybody, which is a cliche, an overused cliche, while we don't endeavor to do that, what we have said is, look, there are certain areas where we think we can provide value on the proprietary side. But we also know that in some areas, it's more difficult to do that. And so we have been very comfortable using a combination of active and passive, a combination of proprietary and non-proprietary. And we think that, and and we charge the same regardless. And so we think it's been a a good combination that exposes our clients to just the right mix. Interesting. That was going to be one of my other questions is, is is there a difference in, in how you charge for proprietary strategies versus public market strategies versus private market strategies? Are some of these more profitable or or beneficial for the firm or is it just 
everything's exactly the same on pricing. We really don't care which one you choose. Just find one that's appropriate for your client. We're giving you a menu as the as the parent firm for all of our wealth managers to use. Yeah. As tempting as it would be to say, you know, like this is one of the, the, the things that we can say and others who do what we do can say the same thing, which is that, okay, you know, we have the ability to manage a portfolio for, and let's say that, that, that our client, you know, is looking for some sort of large cap domestic equity exposure. So great. So we can use, you know, pick a mutual fund, you know, the Fidelity Contra fund, great fund. You know, we can use that fund. We're happy to do that. We'll charge our fee. Fidelity Contra has its expense ratio. The client is effectively paying both. If we decide that it's better for the client, and we are fiduciaries, if it's better for the client instead to use the colony large cap strategy, that's fine. Then we'll do that, but we don't double charge our clients. So we still just charge the one fee, the same fee, and there's no underlying expense ratio. And so one of the benefits of our being able to utilize our strategies is that the client saves a whole level of fees. Um, in addition, we can customize better and hopefully be a little bit more tax efficient than a mutual fund would be. So we think it's a value add. We think it's an important differentiator in a space where there, it's increasingly hard to differentiate. And we've been doing it for a long time. Playing devil's advocate then, why, why doesn't every client just send out there if it's You've got the scale to customize it and you can drill down further and, and the cost structure ends up lower because I guess you're, you're buying individual securities so you don't have a, a mutual fund or an ETF wrapper layer adding to the to the cost on top. Why, do, why doesn't everybody just end out in, in one of those? Well, many of our clients do, but many don't. And there are a variety of reasons for that. In some cases, the client will have a preference for either mutual funds or other managers. In some cases, to be fair, remember that the colony group, and again, we haven't gotten into this yet, but the colony group is actually comprised of six constituent firms merged together over the last five to six years. And um, and we have great respect for what people have built in terms of our merger partners. Every one of them has been a tremendous firm. And so they often come to us with portfolios that consist of what they consisted of. And so, you know, there's a legacy. We're not going to sell the portfolio just to make it more efficient for us. You get to put the client first. And so a lot comes from just, just historically positioned portfolios. And also, you know, to some extent, you get people, you get, you get an advisor who's been doing this for 25 years. And some advisors love mutual funds and some love individual securities and some love passive, you know, the index funds or ETFs. Those are all good ways to manage money, and we don't get too upset about different ways of accomplishing the same objectives. What we do search for always, though, is, is, is a constant approach to asset allocation. How you fill the pieces of the pie chart are import, is important, but to us, the most important thing where we do have to have you know, absolute consistency is on the asset allocation side. Okay. So you guys, as you would view it, all right, if a client's plan and goals and risk tolerance necessitates a 60-40 portfolio, we're going to make sure they get to a 60-40 portfolio. Now we can have a discussion, okay, so for that 60, we've got proprietary equity strategies, we got some public market strategies, we got some private market strategies. How are we going to fill in that 60% equity slice with 
the various various strategies we're able to implement because of the capabilities of the firm. Well, that's right. And keep in mind that there are size issues as well that, you know, really we we like to see at least a half a million dollars. We can go as low as 250, but we like to see a half a million dollars in a proprietary equity portfolio. You know, if you're in our our dividend growth portfolio, you know, we like to see you with a with a half a million dollars. And, you know, given an, a full asset allocation approach, that means you're looking at a much larger amount of assets. And so it's just not for everybody. In some cases, we're going to need to use funds. Right. And so that becomes much of the drawing line right there. I mean, if I've got a half a million dollar portfolio, but only 60% of it's going to go to equities. So there's only two or 300,000 and you're going to buy me a a whole bunch of individual stocks. At some point, even at five to 10 bucks a trade, like that adds up if you're going to buy dozens or a hundred stocks in, in relatively small pieces. That's right. I mean, you'll be buying, you know, 1.3 shares of Amazon or whatever, you know, so that that's exactly right. Okay. Makes sense to me. So from the wealth manager's perspective, I'm going to go through a planning process with my clients. I'm going to figure out what kinds of investment policy statement, asset allocation is appropriate. I'm going to start slotting some strategies in and then I go out to my assistant portfolio manager. I guess I may interact with several of them as one wealth manager because depending on where my clients are determines which traders I have to talk to for particular issues with that client with that strategy. Right. That that's right. Again, we we believe in specialization. We believe that we should take advantage of our size and the depth of our team. And so in turn, you know, we want to have professional money managers, you know, managing the money behind the scenes. We leave it to the relationship manager to decide, you know, the nature of of that, how it's going to work. Right. Okay. Interesting. So where does your Invest. What where does your operations support then fit into the process here? So we have a chief operating officer. Our chief operating officer uh, controls several functions within within the company. So specifically, those would include the HR function for the entire company. But it would also include the investment operations function, as well as finance and legal and compliance. Now, for finance, we have a a separate chief financial officer. For legal and compliance, we have a general counsel and a chief operating officer. But ultimately, that really does all roll up to our chief operating officer. Okay. So can you tell us a little bit about how things get structured from the the wealth manager side? You said 60 plus of the 100 employees are advisory, but you said there are levels or or senior advisors and associates. So how how do you structure advisors or advisor teams? What does that look like in college? So a couple of things. So first of all, we believe in – so there are really three ways to, to think about teams. So every one of our advisors belongs to a team, and that team is a support team. The team meets once a week. They talk about you know everything that's going on, what's in everyone's calendar for the week, and we're very careful about those teams. You know, we don't want them to be at a, about any one person. So we talk about you know Bravo, Charlie, Delta. So you deliberately, it's not like you know if I'm. If I'm John Smith, it's not the Smith as the lead advisor. It's not the Smith team. It's you know the Charlie team. That's exactly why we do that because it's not about a particular person. Again, we we seek you know enterprise status and you know so it's not about a person. It's about a team. 
Each team has a group of senior financial counselors, which are the people who are at the very top, financial counselors who are aspiring to be senior financial counselors, but very senior people who themselves have some clients, associate financial counselors and senior associate financial counselors. Each team is also supported by a client service administrator that can do much of the account work and some of the administrative support, as well as, as you pointed out, by uh, an assistant portfolio manager. And that's one way that we work in teams, but there are two other types of teams. You see, you know, I read an article recently, I think it was put up by Deloitte that talks about modern organizations and how they think about teams and they think about organizational structure. And, you know, as you become larger and more modern, it's very hard to just have everyone fit in a single box or in a single line in an org chart. And that's really not the best way to run an organization. And the way we think about things are that, you know, every, you've, every Every single team has to have has to have leadership. So we have team leaders. In some cases, that's more than one person. They're co-leaders, and that changes from time to time. But someone's got to be accountable for each team. But it doesn't mean that someone can't be on multiple teams. And here's what I mean by that. So while we have specific service teams, we also have people that are accountable for different segments of our clients. And I don't mean typical segments that is in, you know, size, which is the way people typically segment right. their clients. C clients, C clients. Yeah, exactly. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is clients that we consider to be family office clients. That is led by Dina Lee from our, our New York office. And she serves as president of Colony Family Office. Now, you could have she she does have there are there are many people who have you know these kinds of multifamily office clients these very large clients that require a different type of service so she leads that team we have someone leading our institutional client team we have someone leading our corporate executive team a big part of what the colony group has always done is serve corporate executives and so we have someone who's accountable for that we have two people who are co-presidents of our athlete and entertainer group because we have a very substantial practice in that area so so you've got a whole series of of basically niches underneath the broader Colony group, a high net worth family office niche, an institutional niche, a corporate executives niche, an athletes and entertainers niche, all as part of the colony umbrella. Women and wealth, exactly. And and these are these are functions that also need to have leadership. And so we do. And then the last area where we have leadership, and again, there's overlap in a lot of some of these things, is is across offices. So every office also has to have leadership. You know, that, that may or may not sound confusing to an outside observer, but I will just say this, that what it does is it creates more opportunity for leadership and empowerment within the organization, but it also creates, in my mind, greater opportunity for, for cross-pollinization and for some flexibility, but specialization. In other words, you know, we have people who love providing service not just for one segment. They want to provide service for sure. They do have a lot of corporate executives. Well, that was going to be one of my questions. Like if I'm a if I'm a senior financial counselor that has corporate executives, like do I am I expected to focus in and and own that niche, or can I have some corporate execs and an athlete and some institutionals and three people from family office? 
Well, we want you to be focused in an area, but never exclusively. And if we did, then I think that we're going to have a hard time, again, attracting, developing, engaging, and retaining the best people in the business. Because I think people are looking for something beyond that that type of specialization on the wealth management side. They want exposure. And I also think that they become better counselors. That's what we call our planners or relationship managers. I think they become better counselors when they do have a broader exposure because, you know, what you learn for, okay, so it's true. If you're, if you're a professional athlete, you're not likely to have a whole bunch of ISO issues, you know, incentive stock option issues, but you are going to have cross border issues in, in many cases. And you are going to have multi state tax issues, for example. And I think that that kind of exposure is very helpful to someone who is, who is providing advice to a corporate executive. So, you know, there, it, there's some value to it. Same thing with the teams. You know, if you're just exposed to the same five or six people and you're not getting a broader exposure to other people, I think you're losing something. Makes sense to me. Although I, I, I can imagine at some point, if people don't eventually choose into a specialization, it gets hard just to hard to remember to all of the different areas of expertise when you're serving clients in five different niches at once. Well, that's right. And and I think that that as you think about business development, you know, as you know, there's marketing and then as marketing gets closer to sales, you know, you're being more specific. And so in order to to attract people, if you want to attract a family office type client or a professional athlete client, you really do need to be able to say you have expertise dealing with those people specifically. And so there's a, you you sort of want to have your fun and work with lots of people. But if you really want to be successful at business development, finding a niche is a very helpful way to do that. So I'm curious, going back to the advisor teams themselves. So you, so you have these four tiers, senior financial counselor, financial counselor, senior associate, and associate. You know, does advisor team Bravo have one of each of those on a team or, or several of those on a team? Like how? What actually constitutes a team? <laughs> yeah, several of them. And we do it, we do it in a variety of ways. We look at, we're very, we actually think about who the clients are. We do think about geography. We think about, about pairing people together based on their needs from mentoring, who is a good, good mentor, who can teach people about this, that, or the other thing. And so it is strategic. Much of that work is done by the president of our wealth management division. Um, and people supporting that person. And once you're on a team, it doesn't mean you have to be on that team forever. We do constantly make changes depending on what we think is best. But most, in most cases, there are people, there are multiple people at each level for, for each team. And that's a good thing as well, because we know full well that, you know, when you're an associate, it's often more comfortable to speak to another associate uh, with a question as opposed, we, we of course try to be open to those things, but it's good to have peers at, you know, throughout the process. And so we, we certainly encourage that. So like wealth management team Bravo might have like, two senior financial counselors and two financial counselors and one senior associate and three associates and the eight of them serve like 400 clients and and that's one big team is is that like the kind of thing that it adds up to what we do is on the on the senior financial counselors at this company, we endeavor to make sure that no senior financial counselor is ultimately the primary 
we call them primary counselor, you know, that sort of primary relationship manager for more than, say, 60 people. That's not a fast rule. In some cases, that uh, someone may only have 40 clients. In some cases, they might have 65 clients. We really endeavor to, 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 to keep to no more than 60 clients because we just think that once you get beyond that, you get to a place where you're not able to provide that, that true, customized, intensive service that we seek to, to provide. Now, what does that mean for everybody else downstream? Like, can a, a senior financial counselor can only serve 60, but there may still be two financial counselors on that team that each serve another 80 and the whole team still serves 200, but the one at the top has more limited on the quantity ostensibly because they also tend to end out with the biggest clients on yeah, that they're, they're ultimately accountable for, 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 for all of them. The financial counselors will have, in some cases, primary counselor responsibility. In other words, what will happen is you see this in many, many larger firms where the senior financial counselors will supervise the financial counselors and often transfer business to them or allow them to take on some clients, but under their supervision. So there's always a, a senior person that serves in a, so we have, our clients all have primary counselors assigned to them. And in some cases they have a secondary counselor. And the secondary counselor will be a partner. It will be a, you know, a senior financial counselor. And that will happen in two cases. One, where there's a, a more junior person involved. And then the other place that it will happen is, is we do segmentation by size as well. And so when you have a key client, that key client will typically assign a secondary counselor just to make sure that there are two senior level people who are available on the relationship to provide better service, but to also make sure that in the event there's any disruption, the event that anyone leaves, which happens very, very rarely, but if it does happen for whatever reason, that there's another senior person who's attached to that client. So just as a retention strategy, you'll tend to double up financial counselors on on particular key clients. And so as we move further down that team structure now, our, our senior associates and associates also working with a subset of their own clients, or is their role different at their level or their tier? Yeah. So the senior associates in some cases will get their own clients. Ultimately, they'll need to get their own clients in order for them to advance. So we, much like the best managed firms, I think have written career paths. We have a written career path and the written career path is broken out into basically four categories. Client responsibilities is one. Technical expertise is one. Management skill and then business development. On the client responsibility size, we expect a, a senior financial counselor, as I said, to be managing 50 plus relationships, typically you know, around a 60, 60 client cap. A financial counselor, in order to become a financial counselor, we want to see someone managing somewhere between 25 and 50 clients. And, you know, for the senior associate, they may have a handful of, of, of clients, say five to 10 clients just as they sort of learn the ropes. And the idea is they're developing their own clients. Like if I'm a if I'm a senior associate and I want to move up, my path of moving up is I got to get me some of my own clients. That's that's the deal. 
As much as I would love for that to be the case, I think it's a little unfair to expect someone who, uh, we do expect that everyone is involved with business development. It's difficult for someone. So think about it this way. An associate is someone with sort of two to four years, you know, it's, it's, and then a senior associate, another two to four years. So, and then a financial counselor, another two to four and senior financial counselor, two to four. So it should take, you know, a minimum of eight years to become a senior financial counselor. Hopefully it doesn't take 16 years, but a minimum of eight years to become a senior financial counselor. You know, someone who's been in the business for two to four years or even five, six years, it's, it's awfully hard. And so that will happen. And it does happen and we celebrate it. And certainly that person can take on those clients. Most of the clients are handed to them though. Okay. And how do you view capacity overall for advisors? I know you said senior financial counselors, you believe start capping out at 60 or it's hard for them to provide the, the service expectations you expect beyond that point. I know just in our industry, discussions of what is an appropriate capacity for an advisor is kind of a widely debated thing right now. Some firms run 100 plus insist you can do that. Some say the whole key to scaling your business is you have to get your advisors up to 120 to 150. You guys are running it at 60. How do you view that number? Is that like a deliverables capacity issue? Is that just sort of a revenue number? Like, hey, the revenue adds up. So we're just going to cap it here because we think we can service them well. How do you come to a number like 60? So through trial and error, through our experience as to our service model, our service model, we consider it to be, you know, Michael, I don't have to tell you, the, the most overused cliche in our industry is comprehensive wealth management. It's, the, it's a term that people, everyone says they do it, very few people do it. People use that term to describe, you know, a few estimated tax projections and maybe a retirement projection. Or there are people like us that use it to describe, you know, intensive estate planning and tax planning and retirement planning and risk management and cash flow planning and balance sheet planning, blah, 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 et cetera. So that is our service model. And when you have someone who is providing that level of service, you know, that level of in, intense service who is, you know, reviewing estate planning documents and meeting with clients at least quarterly to go over all of their financial circumstances. We've just learned that that a counselor really just can't handle any more capacity and still be able to maintain, you know, what we're trying to do. And keep in mind, by the way, what I told you, which is that remember that unlike other firms, our counselor is also being supported by investment people behind the scenes, which theoretically should free them up to do even more because, you know, unlike at other firms where, you know, the relationship manager is also effectively operating as the portfolio manager, we don't do that. And yet that's just what works. But I'll tell you though, Michael, our margins have not suffered. Our client retention is, is excellent. And we track that. We do dashboards. So our company has a dashboard that we circulate on a monthly basis. And every individual relationship manager has a dashboard, which tracks their own circumstances. And I will tell you that, you know, this, this model works well. I actually have our company dashboard up in front of me and I'm looking at a greater than 99% client retention rate, you know, year to date. And, that comes from that just come and i know that you know that in our business you do have high retention rates but that type of retention rate comes from this kind of 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 intense service so this leads me to a couple of of questions or thoughts so i guess 
on the flip side, even at a, at a capacity of 60, at, at your multi-million dollar client sizes, I'm presuming like a, a, a senior financial counselor at a capacity of 60 clients is probably still over a million dollars of revenue for that client base. In order to, that's right. I mean, in order for someone to become, so our top, so, you know, so actually there's one level beyond senior financial counselor, which is partner. Now partners, however, you're, you're a partner and a senior financial counselor. So in terms, so we have people who are senior financial counselors that are not partners, people who are, but both have the same kind of top level responsibility at, at our company. At our path, you know, we, we, again, our written career path, which we're very clear with people about what our expectations are. What we tell people is that if you want to become a, a partner at our firm, you have to be, and if you're on the relationship management side of things, and many of our people are not. So again, someone like me, I'm not managing relationships on a day-to-day basis, although I certainly do interact with clients. But if you want to be a partner, so these are the, you know, these are the, the, the top senior people managing relationships, we expect you to be managing at least $750,000 of revenue. And is that what it takes to actually become a partner or make partner at Colony? Or or is there other criterion beyond just the amount of, of revenue that you're responsible for? Oh, no, it's certainly beyond that. But that is on our path. And again, we we put our path out there because we want to make sure that everyone has clarity. Again, I've said this now multiple times. I'll probably say it again. We seek to attract, develop, engage, and retain the best people in the business. We think that in order to do that, you have to give them clear expectations as to how they can achieve what you have. You know, if you really want to get and keep the best people. And that really is the, the whole business, right? Get people, keep people, and get clients and keep clients. If you really want to do that, you've really got to offer them, we think, a path toward ownership. So what we expect is you know, we give them those kinds of, of statistics. We want to see them have you know, sort of 50 plus clients, 750,000 plus of revenue. We want them to have you know, 95 to 100% retention. And so those are kind of you know, fast facts. But that's only one box. It looks like I actually have the path right now in front of me. I just pulled it up and it looks like there are probably about 20 boxes. So that's one, one of many things that we look at. You know, we look at, at things that are not quite as easily measured. So they may not be, you know, so-called smart objectives, but they are nevertheless important objectives and, and ones that we still put out in front of our, of our people. So I'm also very curious how you compensate advisors a colony because I, I know particularly when you get into a world of talking about capacity, you know, a lot of firms compensate advisors by their ability to participate in the revenue of their client base, which means when you when you get to a cap uh, on clients for service standards, you also suddenly end out at a cap on your income upside at the firm, which might still be a really comfortable number for a lot of people by the time you get there, but starts to limit upside. So I'm I'm curious how both just how you structure compensation for these different levels of senior financial counselor, financial counselor, senior associate and associate, and, and also how do you deal with issues like capping out your compensation because you capped out your clients? So our compensation plan is based on several important principles. And those are that we want we want clarity predictability, transparency, and an alignment of interests. 
And we do not believe whenever possible in discretionary kind of random compensation structures. I know that works for some firms. I'm going to make a bold statement, a strong statement, and say that I think in many cases, founders and owners of companies like those structures because it gives them full control over things and not because it's necessarily best for the business. That is not the way we do things for our senior people. So for our advisors, I would prefer to to just keep it a little bit vague. We do have specificity. But what I'll tell you is that let's just say that we pay our advisors somewhere in the area of 20 to 25% of their revenue. Now, more specifically, the vast majority of that is fixed. A very small piece of that is variable based on company performance and individual performance. But the vast majority of it is is fixed. You know, I can get 20% of my revenue by just you know, doing the basics of serving and retaining my clients. But if the firm has a good year and I meet my individual goals, I can get 23%. And if we have a blowout year and I do awesome on my goals, I can get to 25%. Something like that. It's a little bit more than 20 is the starting point. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's a little bit of variability. Say about three three percentage points of that is variable. And we do that on purpose because we want to make sure that it's it's pretty predictable. Again, go back to what I just said we're looking for. So it's very predictable. But look, it, you we, we, we report to our, our company what our budget is at the beginning of the year. If we beat our budget, you make more. If we don't beat our budget, you make less, but not a whole lot. So that's the idea. So that, that works well because, and of course, we do incentives as well. If you bring in a new piece of business and we, we pay a 25% new business incentive, that does not apply if you are going to keep the client, because if you're going to keep the client, you're going to get paid on the client in, in perpetuity. But if you bring in a piece of business and give it to someone else, because it's appropriate to give it to someone else, then you get 25% of first year revenue, but someone else gets paid on in perpetuity on that client. So that becomes at least part of your upside once you cap is... I can't grow my personal client base and my recurring revenue anymore, but at least if I'm bringing in business and handing it off, I can still I can still get paid. Yes. Well, keep in mind also, though, that the vast majority of our senior financial counselors are also partners, and we are a profitable business, and so they're getting a profit distribution in addition to their you know normalized compensation, which is really what this is. And right, and and so ultimately, you know. You can grow the firm and not get paid anything for your business development. You're going to get paid off the bottom line of a larger firm, regardless of whether you get paid a cash compensation for your internal referral. So how do people actually become partner for you guys? Like, is this, if you do enough business development and you manage enough clients, then then you get some shares as part of your compensation? Or is that still ultimately a buy-in? They still, even if they've contributed to the growth of the firm, you still got to bring new money to the table if you want to buy in as a partner. Every one of our 38 partners has bought in. Now, some of them have done that in the form of, you know, they merge their companies with us. So they they have bought into their company and they merge with us, but everyone buys in. However, that being said, the, your ability to become a partner should never be dependent on your ability to pay for the shares. And so what we have done is we've lined up third-party financing. So we have a, a regional bank that lends for us nationally, wherever our partners are located. And our company does guarantee the debt, no personal guarantees though. 
And we have a great structure where people borrow the money, they buy in at a valuation formula, which I'm happy to describe how that works, but they buy in and it's the same formula going in and out. And the, the bank has thus far been very generous and has, has done a seven year amortization period, but even better, they do back-ended principal amortization. So you can always prepay it, but if you don't want to prepay it, the idea is you only pay 5% of the principal back the first year and then 10% the second year, and then it goes up ultimately, I think, to 20 or 25%. And the idea is that you have time to make more and more money, and hopefully the dividends that we pay will pay the principal and interest at least for the first you know, couple of years. And ideally, if there's some growth and you're participating or you're you're trying to help drive growth as a as a successful partner in the firm, that by the time you get to the back end principal parts, your profit distributions have gotten larger because the firm has grown, and so the math still still kind of works out that you can you can cash flow it as you go. That's right, and thus far that has worked beautifully for us. And how do you guys set the well? So I guess two questions: one, if if you're willing to to share, I mean, like, what does the profit margin look like for for a firm like yours? I mean, or even how do you think about margins? And is your valuation tied to that? Like, do you do you price on revenue? Do you price on margins and and like multiples of free cash flow? How do you set an internal valuation when there's so many different partners involved that may be buying or selling from year to year? So our budget for the year for 2017 is to have a 39.2 percent profit margin, which we consider to be very healthy. And yeah, 39.2 is a really big margin. <laughs> yeah, it is. And you know, if you look at we care a lot about benchmarks. So we think, you know, Schwab, Fidelity, there are some really good benchmark studies out there. And I believe I saw may have been the Schwab benchmark study referred to 39% as sort of being, you know, where the best managed firms are. And so we're aware of these things and we, we, we seek to be in that category. And we think benchmarking is really helpful to understand where we stand in the industry. So we are, you know, budgeting for exactly 39.2%. When I, sorry, just since you brought up kind of benchmarking studies. So when I look at, at traditional benchmarking studies, you know, the, the classic is usually something like, 35 to 40% of your gross revenue goes to your direct expenses. So your advisor staff and your investment professionals that are creating the portfolios that our advisors are implementing about 30 to 35% is typically goes to overhead. So operation staff, administrative staff, HR management, all the all uh, office rent, all the internal stuff, the software. And then if you start with 100 and you subtract off 35 to 40 for direct expenses and another 35 or so for overhead, you end out with these 25 to 30% profit margins that have become typical for the advisory industry. So when when you guys drive that margin up to 40%, is is that you know, you're you figure out how to be more efficient on like advisor structuring in the top side? Is that because you're you're Overhead expenses at your size are only 25% of revenue, not 35% of revenue. Like, where does a firm like yours squeeze out that much additional margin? Yeah. So, if you think about our overall expenses, they're about a third before you get to partners and distributing. Some of that is compensation to partners. And again, keep in mind, we have a lot of partners that we have to pay. But yeah, I mean, it just we we keep our expenses to I think a very reasonable place, 
But yet, you know, we I read a book called I believe it was um, I believe it was Small Giants. You know, it's a it's a it's a book that talks about companies that are sort of our size that you know they're not they're not Apple or Cisco, but they're not huge relative to you know companies outside of our industry, and yet they're you know they're they're giants in their own right. And what they talk about is that these companies learn you know to to not spend money on things that aren't important but when they're important you spend a lot of money so for example like technology you know that's something you just you need to technology people those are things you spend money on research so we do but yeah that's that's our those are our margins you also asked about valuation and I want to just make sure that I'm answering that question as well and so uh, the way we value ourselves is based on discounted cash flow we look at five years of expected cash flow to be produced from our company. We assume a reasonable growth rate as part of that. We assume a discount rate. We assume a terminal value. And we, we put that all together. That gives us an enterprise. We add assets, subtract liabilities. We do not believe in, I think, you know, people look at margin multiple, I mean, I, I'm sorry, revenue multiples and, asset percentages and things like that. I just think that those are very, those do not often tell the full story. And I think when they're right, it's more coincidental. And so we prefer to look at, at, you know, earnings and cash flow. So when you're a firm that's been growing so much, I mean, you, you guys were, are closing in on $6 billion. Five years ago, you were under $2 billion. I mean, what, what do you even plug in as a growth rate and then a discount rate coming backwards on a discounted cash flow projection. Like the, your, your firm is so large and the numbers are so large. Like, and just imagine if, if I assume 30 plus percent growth rates continuing for the next five years, given that you did more than that over the past five years, you get some extraordinarily large numbers for, for valuation. No, we don't do that, but we do use a 15% growth rate. We, and that has been, thus far, it's been conservative, but I hear your point that as we get larger, we may have to ultimately revisit that. But here's the, here's the opposite of that though. While we assume a 15% growth rate, we assume a 20% discount rate. And I, I think you could really argue about whether we're, we're, we're being fair, you know, by using, I mean, in other words, I think that that may be conservative in terms maybe, of. Yeah. You know, you know and, and I know a lot of smaller advisory firms. Frankly, ten years discount rates even higher. I've I've seen many valuations for even for the couple hundred million dollars and up that are still using twenty two to twenty five percent discount rates. If you just kind of imagine the the market rate of return in equity risk premium, a small cap premium, a micro cap premium, and then like a key people premium because you don't have a lot of people distributed, and you just you start layering the risk premium on, and you get a discount rate that's pretty high. So I guess even by industry standards. Arguably, I mean, 20% is lower than what a lot of other work firms use, but you're also a much larger, more stable firm than what a lot of other firms use. Right. So, you know, I could argue for even a lower discount rate, but we haven't. We've used 20% for many years now, and I think it works well for us. And we use a very low terminal value multiplier at the end. We use a five times multiplier at the end for the, you know, for the year five cash flow for what the company's worth, you know, pre presumably after five years. It's all part of the, the, the DCF analysis. And I think we, we arrive at a very fair valuation and certainly one that we think is very sustainable. Well, and, and I guess the notable point, I mean, to the extent it may be. Yeah, it maybe debatably tilts a little bit in favor of a buyer given that. You've been beating 15% growth rates and we can debate a 20% discount rate. 
it encourages your advisors to continue to ask for reasonable compensation, but just reasonable compensation because they know their upside is contribute to the firm, make partner, participate in partner upside, and that's the long-term growth ticket. So I don't I don't have to, as an upwardly mobile financial counselor at Colony, I don't have to try to play this game by trying to get the biggest darn salary out of you I can possibly get out of you in, in that like classic employee versus management battle. Because I know that if I take a reasonable comp and everybody else takes a reasonable comp, we just end out with a larger profit margin. And I participate in that anyways as a partner. So I just want to take my reasonable comp, help grow the firm, get a chance of partnership, and off we go. Right. Let's just say that I don't think, I don't remember the last time, if ever, anyone was looking to sell their shares. You know, we have all buyers, but the good news is that we actually do have an internal market and we have a lot of people that are looking to buy. And so that's actually very helpful for, for us to know that. And so as we think about our future and as we continue to build value, you know, you've got to be responsible about that. Make sure you're keeping a war chest, you know, for, for when people start retiring. But hopefully that war chest won't even be necessary because the next generation can hopefully come in and pick up, you know, shares as the, the prior generations get redeemed. Well, and, and I was that that's why I was going to ask. Like in a world where most people want to hold on to their shares, how how do you actually generate the shares to sell when people want to buy in? Is is the firm just diverse enough in its population and base of of people now that there's always some partners who are a little bit closer out to the retirement end who have some shares to redeem, or do you have to kind of nudge people to sell sometimes, or do you just issue? shares from treasury stock and give everybody a pro rata dilution to do the share creation that you need? Like, how, how do you handle share transitions given the, the number of hands in the, in the pot at this point? You do know all the right questions to ask. So a few years ago, a number of us, a number of the larger shareholders, when we brought in a class of new owners and we did sell we quickly realized that that was not going to be sustainable and we needed to get comfortable with the concept of issuances. What we decided was that we would happily do an issuance as long as there wasn't dilution. So yes, if you want to think about percentage ownership, I suppose there's dilution, but as long as you keep the proceeds in the company and don't distribute them, there's no dilution of value. Oh, right. Because I, I sell whatever is 1% of the company for $100,000, but the $100,000 goes back into the company. And then everybody who's left gets a distribution of the 100000 of cash or, or participates in it somehow. You don't get a distribution because we keep it inside the company, but- But, but, but it, it increases your allocable share. Which means that in turn, you have not been diluted. But what we did even better, just to make sure everyone understood that concept and was no longer thinking about what percent they owned, is we unitized the company. And so, yes, we're an LLC. And so it used to be, okay, you own 6.1% and that person owns 9.4%. And what we did was we unitized. And so now everyone just owns a certain number of units. And that, of course, doesn't change if we do an issuance. So that may only be a psychological change, but we don't want people thinking, oh, something bad happened. Rather, it's the converse. When someone, when we admit someone who's now a keeper forever, someone's got golden handcuffs on, someone who is never going to leave because they're a partner, hopefully for life, that's good for everybody. And we should all be celebrating that and not thinking about, oh, what percentage did, did I just you know go down to? 
Interesting. Interesting. And and you still do that within an LLC structure. You never went over to to an S core to facilitate some of the transferability? Well, you're speaking to a, a to a, a former tax practitioner. And so I'll tell you that as much as I as I love the, the S-Corp concept, and we certainly would have done that, especially because it gives you an opportunity, you know, to avoid having to pay, you know, self-employment taxes on 100% of the income, you know, whether it's dis- distributable share or comp, we could have done an S-Corp that would have helped us in that case. It would have helped us in terms of, you know, the, 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 as your point, pointing out in terms of having shares. Massachusetts, however, and we do have a big presence in Massachusetts, Massachusetts imposes a sting tax on large S-corps. And that tax is sufficient enough to make sure that we will never convert into an S-corp. Interesting. So uh, once again, good old state tax laws still, still matter and drive some outcomes. It does. So that, that, that option is not on the table for us. So you mentioned that you drive a lot of your operating efficiency with technology as well, and you, you've got dashboards for the for the firm. So I'm I'm curious both what you actually use to build the dashboards, but more generally, just what is the kind of the core technology stack of Colony Group? I mean, like we've got the big three. Almost everyone's got some kind of CRM, some kind of portfolio accounting, and some kind of financial planning software. So what does the technology stack look like and, and, and which one of those drives really handy business management dashboards? Okay. So first of all, in terms of the stack, so to speak, we use, um, we had been longtime users of Advent. I think Advent's a great company. I think we just needed something different as we sought to evolve our business. And so we moved to Tamarack several years ago. We use Tamarack. I'm just curious so fast. So you, because if you were with Advent, so you you decided not to switch to Black Diamond, or did you go to Tamarack before Advent bought Black Diamond and brought them? No, actually, we were still with Advent. We had not upgraded to APX, so we were still on Axis. And so for us, the decision was upgrade to APX, go to Black Diamond, which they had just bought about this time, or do something else. And we looked at those options. We looked at APX, we looked at Black Diamond, we looked at Orion, we looked at Tamarack, we looked at everything. And I guess at the point that you were on the old... Advent access, like anywhere you went was a complete and total migration and rebuild of your of your backend. It's not like, hey, flip the switch to Black Diamond and it'll be a little bit easier, at least back then. Like you had a you had a full rebuild migration coming no matter what. So you may as well take a fresh look at the market. And and it took 12, 12 months. I mean, it was a it was brutal. It was just it was a lot of work to get it right. You know, we had to run two systems for two quarters and it, it's a, it's not something I would look forward to again. Well, yeah, we've we've uh, we've lived through a similar transition internally for Pinnacle about two years ago, moving away from Legacy Portfolio Center, and yeah, just that migration process. Even when it goes relatively well, it's it's still pretty painful. It is painful, and we do it every time we do a merger. Understand, unless the firm happens to be on Tamarack, but even then, there's still a migration. So what led you to Tamarack versus the the alternatives when you were looking at the landscape? So it actually, you know, so few things. Most importantly was the way we could report to clients. We felt that while APX did offer some nice flexibility and functionality, we looked at the reporting function 
and also the way our advisors would use, you know, the equivalent of what an advisor view is for Tamarack. And we really like the fact that our advisors could all go into advisor view, prepare any kind of report that they needed to, that we could customize reports for clients, we could customize billing arrangements for clients. And we just felt that the reports looked really cool and that the whole advisor view and reporting function was just the top. So we went with that, but also that was coupled with the fact that, again, you know, we have a, a very robust investment management infrastructure. And so we needed to have a good, a good trading system as well. And actually, we were fans of, of Moxie, you know, Advents Moxie. That's, we th- think that's a good product. It's, it works well, but we felt that, that Tamarack's rebalancer was as good. Although I will tell you that we actually decided that we were going to use rebalancer for everything except on the fixed income side. And we have fixed income people who swore by a system called Perform, which is owned by a company called Investor Tools. And that's a really high-end fixed income system, which we did buy for the fixed income. So I guess I should point that out. But on the uh, but for the core of the business, I guess that the appeal for Tamarack was not not just for flexibility of and quality of reports and billing management, the rest, but but the fact that their portfolio accounting and their rebalancer is all all one system, so you know it's going to be cleanly natively integrated. You don't have to worry about bad data coming from your portfolio accounting over to your rebalancer because it's the same software. Now, they either didn't have a CRM at the time or they were developing it or maybe they had just developed it, but we did not go with their, with their CRM, which is unfortunate because we love, you know, just like any firm, we, we love, you know, uh, integration whenever it's possible, but we, we did go at Juncture instead of Tamarack. And you guys still run Juncture, I'm presuming the cloud version? We are, yeah. We moved to the cloud last year, and uh, that was a big migration. And that's critical for us because, you know, with seven offices, you, you just have to be on the cloud. So we've moved to the cloud on much of our technology. You know, so for example, you know, we're on, we use CCH Pro Systems FX. We do tax returns as well. So we use that for our tax return function. Yeah, we that's do. a lot of tax returns for you. How many tax returns do you do across almost 2,000 clients? Yeah, about fifteen hundred, believe it or not. Now, now some of those are children's returns, and and so it's not re- it's not fifteen hundred clients we're doing them for. And is that something you charge for separately, or is that just hey, you're a high net worth client for us, and you already pay us ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars of AUM fees? Like, here's your tax return. Yeah, occasionally we will bundle services, but that's typically for a, a sort of a, a, an ultra large client. We believe in charging separately because we think it's important that our clients understand the value of that of that function. We do it purely as an accommodation to our clients. Not all of our clients want us to do it, but many of them do. So you're not you're not trying to price it as a a business line with a nice profit margin. It's just, let's try to cover our costs and get through tax season every year. Exactly. I mean, what we charge is a fraction of what the, you know, the, the big accounting firms charge. Yeah, that's right. I mean, as, as long as we're sort of, you know, breaking even on it, then it's great business for us. And, you know, I mentioned that client retention rate, and I think that's a big part of it because, you know, we're much more than just an asset manager. We're an asset manager, we're a wealth manager, and we're doing taxes. And by the way, we charge a retainer fee for our financial, for our wealth management services as well. So I want to come back to that in a moment, but can you finish kind of the technology stack? So so Tamarack for portfolio accounting and rebalancing, 
Juncture Cloud for the core CRM hub for the business, and then eMoney. Yep. We use eMoney. We had been using Cheshire for a long time, another good product. We just felt I remember that- the old Cheshire product. I, I used that many years ago. Yeah, I mean it was and it was great. It was great. I have nothing negative to say about it. We just we just wanted to move into something, you know, that was you know, maybe just a little bit more robust for our clients and you know, we're huge e-money fans. Love e-money. Our clients love e-money. We use it not just as part of the advice function. We use it as part of the prospecting. You know, we when we're doing a prospect meeting, we'll sit with them and show them how e-money works and it's just it's a, it's it's great software. Very happy with it. Very interesting. So coming back to pricing a little bit. So you you mentioned there that you you charge planning, you charge retainer fees for wealth management services that's separate from investment management. So can you talk a little bit more about what what that structure looks like, like what you price and how? So if someone is getting just very basic, you know, again, when we talk about comprehensive, you know, we actually differentiate ourselves, you know, we, we call it the four E's, you know, it's our expertise, the entirety of our services, our enhanced open architecture, and the fact that we're an enterprise. Those are the four E's for us. Wait, wait, say that again. I, I like that. Expertise. Yeah, it's our expertise. It's the entirety of our services. Our use of enhanced open architecture, which I described earlier, and the fact that we're an enterprise. You know, people talk about differentiating themselves. And and the fact is, is that, you know, it's it's kind of nonsense. People talk about unique value propositions. Well, you know, we're objective and fiduciaries and we strive for excellence. It's like, really? Is that is that really, you know, you think that's unique? That's what everyone says. And so we try to focus on things that that really are differentiated. And so when we talk about the entirety of our services, the second E, we really do mean it's a very, very deep and comprehensive process. If a client just wants to get estimated tax projections and some retirement projections, we typically don't charge anything extra for that. You know, we shouldn't. But if a client is looking for, you know, for us to be the architect of their estate plan, to be responsible, sure, we're not drafting it, we're not practicing law, even though we have, you know, 20 or so lawyers, we don't practice law. So, you know, we're not going to be the drafters, but we're the architect, the lawyer is typically the builder. They want that from us. They want us to do really intensive, you know, tax projections. Like they want us, you know, we had we had a client that that needed us to do a, you know, a section 280G analysis, a golden parachute analysis as to what's better, you know, a limited cutback or a cutback or a gross up or, you know, that's real work. That takes a lot of effort, a lot of time. So when a client is looking for that level of service, the very intense wealth management service that we love to provide. Yes, we charge an annual retainer fee. It's often a little bit higher in the first year and then lower in subsequent years. And when you're already charging an AUM fee, like what what kind of retainer fee is that? These aren't like ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollar layers on top. We have we have a client that pays us more than that amount, but believe me, that client's getting a bargain given the you know the amount of work and the number of people working on that client. At least for the typical client. But you know, a you know, classic example is you know sort of five first year five thousand on the lower end, ten thousand on the higher end. And then subsequent years, if the work is less after you know the startup year, then we'll charge less for it. And we always agree up front on what it is for the year. The client can always say no. If they don't want it, that's fine. And that's for folks with you know a few million dollars, or probably at that point, given your typical client. 
That, that's right, typically. I mean, we're not talking about a lot. And people have said, well, why don't you just, why don't you just add that to your asset management fee? Or, you know, and, and I hear that, and maybe it would be simpler. But we actually like the fact that our clients see it. And once again, you know, our clients understand the value that they're getting. And if they don't, they shouldn't, you know, they shouldn't pursue it. If they really don't think it's worth it, then that's fine. We don't have to do those services. We just think that our clients are getting the best of the colony group when they are getting those services. And by the way, I myself am a client of the colony group and I pay a fee and it's so well worth it. My wife loves it. I love it. So I'm curious then if you can share a little bit of your your own story, because I know you you didn't start your career with Colony Group. So, what was your path to the, I guess, to the firm and even through the firm? Because I know you you've you've worn some different hats over the years. Well, I went to uh, I went to law school in the days of LA Law when you know everyone wanted to be a, a lawyer. I was in the same class as Barack Obama and Neil Gorsuch. That was quite a quite a class. That's that's a little bit intimidating, I, I guess. Well, it's intimidating. When I think about it now, it's not so much intimidating. It's really sort of a reality check. You know, what happens to, to people in, in, in our industry is, you know, you do really well and, you know, you, you feel pretty good about, about the way things are going. And then you look around and you see what your classmates are doing with their lives. And, you know, there's, there's nothing like seeing a classmate become the president of the United States or another classmate becoming a Supreme Court justice and another one being an ambassador. And so anyway, that's where I started. And I, I did want to be a, a lawyer. I had planned to be a either a litigator or an international lawyer. I was a summer associate at a, a major law firm at the time called Hale and Door. They ultimately merged with Wilmer Cutler Pickering to, to form Wilmer Hale, which is one of the largest law firms in the world now. Two weeks before I started, I got a call from the chair of the associates committee saying, okay, you can't be a litigator or an international lawyer. We want you to be a tax lawyer instead. And the reason they wanted me to be a tax lawyer is because Vicki Summers, who's Larry Summers' wife, you know, was now moving to Washington, D.C., and she was a tax lawyer and they needed to replace her. So you, so you, were, you, have, you have been greatly shaped by our political process in, in Washington. Involuntarily, but yes. So anyway, I became a tax lawyer because while I was given a choice, it wasn't really clear that I had a choice. But I, you know, I went in there with an open mind and actually I fell in love with it and loved doing it and became a great tax lawyer. And so I did income tax, but also estate and gift tax. And I actually, over the years, I became a partner and had everything going great at a mega law firm and I was developing my own base of clients. I started getting interested in our space, in the investment management space, started building up a whole base of clients there. And I had this little client, probably one of my smallest clients, that I just became really good friends with them, you know, started, started socializing with the people there. That client was the Colony Group. And at the time, they had, you know, 500 or so million dollars under management and, you know, and I don't know, 20 something people or whatever and one office. And they started recruiting me to become the successor to the person who was then the CEO. You know, at first, I just sort of brushed it off, but I started thinking about it. And ultimately, I decided that I liked the, I'd already done the lawyer thing and done really well at it. I was ready for a new challenge. And so 
I went and resigned to the managing partner. The managing partner was great to me. He told me that he understood if it didn't work out, I could always come back. Well, that's good. Good to have a fallback plan. Makes that a little easier. Yeah, it did make it easier. And I think I think a lot of people thought I was crazy for doing it. But I joined the Colony Group on uh, June 27. So I left Wilmer Hale on June 21st, 2004. And I started at the Colony Group June 22nd, 2004. I've never looked back because it's been a phenomenal ride ever since. So what did you join the firm as originally? Like, what, what was your hat then? So you can imagine that, you know, that I was doing very well as a senior partner at this law firm. And so my deal was, I said, well, I'll come, but I have to be the president and I have to know, you know, there's going to be a certain period before I, you know, become the CEO. And I think the leadership at the time, so Kirby Hamilton's our founder and he retired. He's, um, he's now in New Mexico doing great things and enjoying life, you know, having you know, really founded a great company. You know, their their view was that I really should it would be intimidating for people if if suddenly out of nowhere I started as president. And so I started as the chief financial officer and general counsel and did perform those functions. And then a year later I became the president and then the CEO. And then ultimately when Kirby did finally retire, which was in 2011, then I became the chairman as well. So in a firm like yours, can you differentiate like what what is the difference between a president and a CEO and a chairman? Like you 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 labeled those as a, like a migration and a path, but what's the difference? I know a lot of us in small firms kind of mix all those together and sometimes use those terms interchangeably. I, I do think there is a difference. So I think that the the chairman is is clear. So we have a four person board of directors. I'm the chairman of the board. So that's pretty pretty simple. Now you know in terms of governance, we do have a board of directors. The board of directors is the legal authority, but we really don't utilize it except when we need to respect the formalities of what we're doing. So certainly if we do a merger, the board's got to sign a document, et cetera. But our governance is really through an executive committee, not the board. But in any event, let me just first get back to your, your question. So I'm the chairman of the board of directors. The CEO's most important role is, as I described earlier, it's to create an environment where everyone can do their best and to inspire everybody. And that is what I focus on. I want to be an inspiration for people. I want to help people. I'm a servant leader and I I love what I do. I'm passionate about what I do. And that's what my role is. I'm the visionary. I set the vision for the company and I can talk about that. You know, I, I make sure that we're paying attention to things like strategic plan and I can talk about that as well. Our mission. So, uh, you know, that's my role. Now, the president, the president is, is responsible for making sure that all the functional leads within the organization are working together and doing their best job. And currently, I still do have that role, although I do think at some point soon, that role probably does need to be absorbed by somebody else. And so as a CEO of a five or $6 billion firm, like what, what does your typical day or maybe like a typical week look like? I mean, what, what, what does a CEO do in a large advisory firm? 
Well, one thing that I, I do that I'm just addicted to that I probably should do a little bit less of is I still do get involved in client advice because I'm a geek for it. I love it. You know, so they got tax questions. It's fun to I talk about it. them. That's right. Especially when there's a tax question, you know, I just, I get my old books out and, you know, and I just, I'm, I'm, I'm still into that kind of thing. And so I do that. I do some very high level consulting with some of our, actually some of our big clients, some of our small clients, but that's a small portion of what I do. So what do I do during the day? Well, what I do is I meet with people. On a, I'm on the phone and in meetings on a regular basis. I'm out speaking around the country. I'm constantly at conferences. I'm constantly visiting our seven offices. But also, I'm working constantly on uh, my responsibility is to make sure that our strategic plan is being implemented. And our strategic plan is very simple. It's to focus on our clients, focus on our employees, grow organically, grow inorganically, have a culture of accountability by all to all and achieve greater efficiencies within the company. It's six prongs. That's what I focus on. I lead our executive committee, which is the leadership body that's responsible for that sort of strategic aspect of what we're doing. I lead our management committee, which is the, the group of people who are sort of the functional operational leads to make sure that they are, are implementing that strategic plan. But I work on, I work on making sure that we're achieving our vision. I do a lot of thinking about what a future, what a future ready firm looks like. Thinking about, about and trying to evolve our service model to stay ahead of what everyone else is doing. I also have to say that these days I probably spend as much as a third of my time prospecting for merger candidates and uh, visiting merger candidates. And you know, sort of speaking to to people on the strategic side, we also through Focus Financial we are heavy participants in the Focus Successions program, and Focus Successions is where companies sign an agreement with us to make us their succession solution when their founder is ready to retire or if something happens. And we have twelve of those, and so I spend a lot of time on that as well. Interesting. And, and so this is why the, the world of dashboards matters so much because that's part of your obligation just to keep the data at your fingertips and keep your, I guess, keep your finger on the pulse of the, the business and how it's doing in all of these areas. Yeah, we, we, we believe in transparency. And again, you know, sort of the, the old adage, what gets measured gets done. And so we do have a company dashboard. I've written about dashboards. I wrote an article that your, your listeners could look up called What's on Your Company Dashboard. We'll include a link to it in the, in the show notes. This is episode 28. So if folks want to link out to the dashboard article and we'll include the uh, How Google Works book and the rest, uh, just go to kitsis.com slash 28 for our episode 28 here. And so on our dashboard, we report things like revenue and expenses. And we do this, by the way, on a monthly basis, but also on a year-to-date cumulative basis and then on a projected you know, ba- uh, basis for the entire year. But we report you know, margins, but we also report, so we track net new assets. So we look at assets from new clients, assets added from existing clients, assets withdrawn from existing clients, and then assets lost from terminating clients. So we track that every month. We look to how much are we gaining from markets? You know, the big myth in our business is, is people, people just don't pay enough attention 
to how much of their growth is attributable to the markets. And we think that needs to be, you need to pay attention to, to understanding how much of your growth is really truly organic coming from just net new asset production and how much is coming from the markets because the markets can give and the markets can take. So we pay attention to all that. We pay attention to our average billing rates. We pay attention to the number of clients we have, new clients, terminated clients, revenue per client, the number of employees we have, and revenue per employee. So those are kind of the core KPIs you manage through the key performance indicators you manage through the year. So how does that get like built and, and populated? I mean, is this... Did you guys just build all this from scratch or is this kind of like these outputs you can derive from Tamarack and in Tamarack's reporting process? Like where, where, do, where do these things come from? So the Colony Group has achieved some some great things over the years, but there there are more things that we can achieve. And so you just described where, where we're going next, which is to be able to pull everything directly out of our systems versus having a manual input into an Excel spreadsheet. Unfortunately, I have to confess that that's what it is right now. So right now, lots lots of Excel spreadsheets. We get we get data reports from various places and dump data into standardized formats that you track and off it calculates. Regrettably, that is an efficiency we have yet to achieve, but we will achieve it. All right. Very cool. Very cool. I, I just the sheer volume of data that you've you've gotten your tracking, I know, is is far beyond what what most of us are tracking right now, or I think what, what we would like to get to. And we take it to the individual level. So remember that, so we have individual counselor dashboards where any counselor can see, you know, their entire book of business, so to speak, and the revenue and the number of clients, et cetera. And then of course we have investment dashboards as well, where each of our strategies, proprietary, non-proprietary are in a single dashboard measured against benchmarks, et cetera. So- as we come towards the end here, I'm I'm curious for your perspective on where you see the the industry going from here. Like from Colony's perspective, what are the what are the challenges that keep you up at night and what's the what are the opportunities that get you excited to look forward? So I've often been asked that the question about what keeps me up at night. Let me tell you, it is not fee compression. It is not robo-advisors. It is not the compliance environment. It is not the DOL and the new fiduciary rule. It's not millennials. It's not all the things that others talk about. For me, it's a very, very simple thing that keeps me up. And it really does. It really is something that I worry about. I believe, so we have a, a very clear vision at this company for truly achieving something extraordinary. We, you know, we talk about an external vision. Our external vision is to build a national company that empowers its clients to live meaningful and joyful lives through the services of passionate people that find meaning and joy in providing those services. Our internal vision in, in our BHAG, our big, hairy, audacious goal, our internal vision is to is we look at the world, we look at the Goldmans of the world, and we all tend to demonize these firms because they're they're operating under the suitability standard and because they're just riddled with conflicts and 
Yeah, that's all true, but they also have some brilliant people. And we have to be respectful of that. And we've got to be respectful of all the other good things that a Goldman or a Merrill has. And yet we have the better, the you know, the better service model. We RIAs, we've got the fiduciary standard, the client-centric approach, you know, the no more than 60 clients, all that kind of the e-money, the hand-holding, all that. It's all great. Our vision is to marry both of those worlds, is to have every capability that a Goldman has, every bit of technology, research, access, all of that, and yet be able to, to still operate in the fiduciary world in a smaller environment where we're providing service the way we RIAs, independent RIAs provide it. And in order to do that, and our BHAG, our big, hairy, audacious goal, to use the Jim Collins term, is to be universally acknowledged as the leading independent wealth management company in the country. The only way that's going to happen is if we believe it's going to happen. The How Google Works book talks about, about Larry Page has, an, has, has a forward and he talks about the whole world, we're all trained to think in terms of gravitational pull. We all think about why things can't happen. What keeps me up at night, Michael, is people not believing in, in what we are capable of doing. If they believe the way I believe what we're capable of doing, we will achieve truly great things. But when we don't believe, when we doubt, that's when it all falls apart. And that is what I worry about. What I worry about is do people truly believe in this vision, in this dream to do something truly extraordinary? That's what keeps me up at night. Thus, your desire to wear a hat for the firm as chief, chief inspiration officer. Yes, because that's what we need. We all have to be reminded of the vision and we have to really believe it's possible. And again, I think we only look, need to look back at past performance. Okay, it's true. From 1986 to 2011, you know, it took us that long to get to just over a billion dollars. But since 2011, <laughs> we've gone from, you know, a little over a billion to, you know, if you look at, at total at billable assets, over six billion. We've gone from, you know, 40 or so employees to a hundred and something employees, two offices or one office really, but two offices to seven offices. If we've done that in less than six years, five and a half years, what are we capable of doing during the next 10 years? That's what we have to remind ourselves. Oh, very cool. So as, as we come to the end here, this is a show about success. And, and one of the themes that, that always ends up coming up in the show is that success means different things to different people and, and sometimes different things to us at, at different stages of our own lives. And so you know, you've articulated the vision around what success for the firm is, both internally and externally. But I'm curious how you view success for yourself. Like what does success mean to you individually? Yeah. So success for me is, uh, you know, just from a business perspective, I'm going to be, uh, well, it's really hard for me to just speak from a business perspective. So my answer to that is I think about the legacy that I'll leave behind when I'm retired. And I want that legacy to be that the Colony Group truly, that I was part of something extraordinary in maybe in multiple ways. I want to know that I was part of something extraordinary, that all of our people here at the Colony Group and all of our offices are part of something extraordinary, and that I had something to do with the company being extraordinary, but also that, you know, that I've been an important part of the community. 
I am the chairman of, of the National Brain Tumor Society, which is, a, which is the largest nonprofit brain tumor organization in the world, certainly in the country. We believe the world. We're not sure about that because we don't have good data. To me, that's an important part of my legacy. What have I left behind from a, from a what, what have I accomplished from a philanthropic perspective? How have I affected people? How am I remembered? What is my legacy? Well, very cool. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast and and sharing that. I love the vision around legacy. It's certainly one of the themes that we hear for a lot of our our guests as they talk about what what success means that that you know there comes a point where it's not just about the money and the dollars, it's about impact and legacy. It's that old saying you can't you can't take it with you and so it's it's really more about what you leave behind. Well, I think we in our industry are very fortunate to be in our industry. It's a great industry to be in and we're very fortunate to be in it. And, you know, the money, the money will come. I think it's better. I often tell people, and I know it's counterintuitive, but I often tell people the less you focus on money, the better off you'll be with money. And so I intentionally don't talk about it because that comes, you know, and, and frankly, I probably could squeeze more money out of this, this whole role of mine in this company but that's not consistent with what I'm talking about and I don't need to. So for me, it really is about the legacy. It's really about about being part of something truly extraordinary for us, for our clients, for our employees, for our families, for all of our many constituents. Well, amen. Well, thank you for joining us and, and sharing that on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.